welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Good to be with you again. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. It's draft season, and the way we kick things off on Future Sox during draft season is welcoming on somebody who knows pretty much everything about the Major League Baseball amateur draft, especially related to the Chicago White Sox. That's Josh Nelson of the Sox Machine Podcast. You can follow Josh at SoxMachine underscore Josh. It's great to talk to you again, man. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation because we have a lot of things to discuss. The White Sox pick number 22, 20 rounds in the draft this year, plus the big league club is dealing with some depth issues and the farm system. You know, they have some pieces that might be relevant in, in terms of adding instead of, you know, looking down the line and development because winning the, the time to win is now and it's exciting. But first, Josh, I want to I want to check in with Sox Machine. Give our listeners a little update on how the website's doing, how the podcast is faring and what you guys have in the works as of late. Well, thank you for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Mike, and of course, James. But I feel like I chat with James almost daily now as we get closer to the MLB draft because we we share what we are hearing as far as from everybody regarding the White Sox and what's happening on the grapevine of trade, you know, draft rumors, especially. Uh, and if we're hearing anything as far as trades. But yeah, you know, for Sox Machine, we're just plugging away like everybody else. Uh, it's exciting to cover a team that's first place in the American League Central. Uh, I've been podcasting for eight seasons. So last year in the small sample size of 2020 was the first time that we obviously podcasted about a playoff White Sox team. And, you know, everyone for White Sox fandom, I, I think we still have to be really excited. I know that it hasn't been a great stretch as of late, but in the 120 plus year history of the Chicago White Sox. They've never made the postseason in back-to-back seasons. Uh, not your grandpa saw that. Not your great-grandma saw that. Nobody has seen this. So for the current group of White Sox fans, uh, we may get a chance to experience something for the first time as a fandom. It's pretty pathetic to say that aloud when your team's been <laughs> in the major leagues for 120 years and they've never made the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. But it's still a very exciting season and uh, just kind of tagging along for the journey. Uh, for those that are going to Milwaukee, I know there's a lot of White Sox fans heading to Milwaukee because you asked for uh, what events we have coming up. We're co-hosting a tailgate with our buddies at from the 108. And uh, right now we have 150 people that have signed up that they're going to be attending our tailgate. And the brewers were kind enough to give us a couple tailgate grids. So if you're going to the White Sox Brewers Series in Milwaukee, Saturday, July 24th, there is going to be a huge White Sox tailgate. You'll be able to see us. So if you are going, uh, definitely let me know via Twitter and we'll make sure that you're on the list because we have to go grocery shopping soon. And and Mike, that's going to be a hefty grocery bill. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and it's something that we're able to do now as, as fans. Is, yes. Get together again, which is awesome. That's so cool. And anything that we can do to help you promote, uh, I know it's coming up here shortly as we record this podcast, but anything we can do to help, I think uh, that's great. And hopefully, you know, more of these events can take place and we can get more of the listeners to come out and meet everybody. Uh, and you mentioned last year, the 60 game season, we, that was obviously an anomaly. And one of the anomalies too is the five-round MLB draft that we experienced that landed the White Sox, Garrett Crochet, and Jared Kelly, among others, including Bailey Horn. Now the draft is changing again, but it looks like it's going to be more consistent and permanent. A 20-round draft, Josh, and this is something that 
I'm, I'm curious to get your take on how the landscape of the MLB draft is, is going to change the way organizations attack the draft this year and how it influences draft capital and things of that nature. So your opinion of the way Major League Baseball structured the 20-round draft. James, Mike asked some loaded questions at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> this draft, this is, this, this is what I'm hearing, Mike, when it comes to this year's draft. Uh, there are two big complaints. The first complaint, and I, I don't necessarily agree with the major league teams, but they're not particularly happy that the college world series and the college season and the high school seasons are mostly over. And for 98% of the players that are going to be selected in this 20th round, 20 round draft, their seasons are over. You're not continuing to watch them up to the day of the draft. So you have major league teams kind of shrugging and asking, what are we going to do for the next two weeks? Cause there's still like, as we record this 17 more days until the draft actually happens in the first round on Sunday, July 11th. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that point of view because I think, you know, this happens in the NFL, you know, the, the football isn't playing games when the NFL draft is happening and you have football scouts spend the extra time months even uh, to continue to scout and watch film and have a better understanding as far as the prospects and have more in-depth interviews. But so that that's one complaint that I'm hearing is that for baseball teams, they're not appreciating this two week layoff. The second regarding the, the 20 round uh, draft is, well, are we going to continue our strategies that we had in 2019 before the pandemic hit? Some teams can't do that because they laid off. Some teams laid off half their scouting department. You don't have enough eyes right now to help you to foster those communications and conversations with families. If you're, if you're trying to be clever and sign this high schooler that might go in the eighth round, but you're promising them a $175,000 signing bonus. If you could take them in the 11th round, like when you gut your scouting departments, like many teams have, that's where you're going to have some impact after the 10th round. So I think we're going to have more teams reliant on track man data uh, and what type of, you know, average exit velocity, max exit velocity, spin rates, velocity on pitches. You're going to have more teams reliant on data more than ever. Some teams more than the scouts that they still employ uh, to help them make picks from the 11th to the 20th round. And James, I don't know how you feel, man, but I always feel like those are the rounds where the scouting departments, the best scouting departments rise to the top. In the sense of, can we get this 18-year-old for 150000 And you find them in the majors playing a small role. A great example, Danny Mendick, right? Danny Mendick won in the 20th round. I don't know if the Danny Mendick slip because he may not show up on any team's draft radar because his school didn't have track man. Like we, That's the type of thing that I'm going to be paying attention to this year is the 11th to 20th round. Because for the teams that go to their scouting department, I don't know how they're going to fare in those 10 rounds. No, pro- you know, probably not well. And look, for all the shortcomings that the White Sox have, and we've been over all of them, I mean, they trust their scouts. They didn't gut their scouting department, which I think is good for stuff like this. Because like you said, the, f- the first part of this thing um, where 
you know, teams are unhappy. From what I've heard, teams are unhappy because like they need to scout next year's players and they don't know how to like deploy their scouts. And if you don't have enough of them, I mean, theoretically, I think all these teams could draft like this weekend or tomorrow or whatever, if they needed to. Um, but they're going in to get extra looks and probably talking themselves out of guys. But they're also, you know, there's like a whole bunch of high school stuff going on for next year and there's college stuff for next year. So I think that's the issue. The issue is they, you know, their timeline is off now and they don't know what to do. But like you said, I mean, it seems pretty minor to me, right? I mean, we're going to talk about the guys at the top a little bit. Like Khalil Watson, I'm sure he's thrilled that, you know, that that this is happening because now everybody's rushing in to see him and he's going to go in the top five where he probably wasn't going to go in the top five what, eight weeks ago when we talked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's all sorts of guys like him that started late. Some of your Northern guys that started late. It makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Um, The scouts just aren't used to it. So, but yeah, like the other thing, you know, the white, the white Sox have scouts. So theoretically they should be fine, but it does come down to strategy. And we often talk about this. I mean, it, you know, it seems they're going back to 125 K for anybody in rounds 11 through 20 but anybody undrafted only gets that 20,000. So I'm going to be curious. My guess is rounds four through 10 are just going to be savers for like most teams. It's going to be like the cheapest seniors that you, you know, guys that you like, right. But guys that are going to sign for 10 K. So you only Mm -hmm. add $60,000 to that bonus pool. And then on day three, you're giving a guy 175000 because it only counts 50K against your pool. I, I think it's going to be a lot of that stuff. And the White Sox have done that a lot in the last two drafts. Yeah, the, the college senior class is huge this year. You're absolutely right, James. And I expect the White Sox to continue that draft strategy that we saw in 2019 and we saw on a smaller version in 2020 in which the the White Sox are going to really upfront their first three or four picks of the draft, spend maybe 80% of their draft pool on those four picks. And the other six picks during the bonus rounds, they're going to be drafting college seniors to, to help save some, some of their bonus budget before ramping up to signing six figure deals again for the guys in rounds 11 through 20. Yeah, I think so too. So Obviously, you know, we've been putting out a bunch of profiles um, at Future Sox. You and I have done the show together the last couple of years. And look, it, you know, it doesn't seem that hard when the White Sox are picking in the top five, right? I think we've we've kind of nailed the players that we need to talk about. But when you pick at 22, I think we're going to have 25 profiles total at Future Sox. And with my luck, like we won't write up the guy that they take. So, but, you know, it's been, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it seems like it's been super prep heavy. Everybody's all over it. Callis, Law, all the main guys. Um, I know you watched Colson Montgomery, who's been rumored for a while the other day. What did you see out of him? And then what do you, what do you think overall if they do go with like a prep hitter in the first round and that's their strategy? Yeah, I saw Colson Montgomery in the Indiana Class 3A championship game against Hanover Central. So for the folks that are from the region in Indiana, uh, you know where Hanover Central is. It's in Cedar Lake, Indiana. Uh, So nearby the region. And, you know, for Colson Montgomery, this reminds me of the book Future Value that Eric Loggenhagen and Kylie McDaniel wrote, James, and the chapters about the struggles of scouting high school bats because you could watch you could you know, spend all this time watching this game this marquee event 
And the, the prep position player you're scouting may not get a chance to swing because the other team decides we're not going to let this guy hurt us. So we're just going to walk him. And that's what happened with Colson Montgomery. He really only had one true plate appearance. It was a ground out to second base. And then his next two plate appearances, they intentionally walked him. Uh, he did score from first on a double. Uh, so I got a chance to see his speed. I would grade it as average. I would grade it as 50 grade. So, But I did get an opportunity to really watch him defensively. I think he had like six or seven uh, putouts in that game. And watching him, again, this is a defensive comp, not offense, defense. Because, James and Mike, you know that if I say that this was a total comp, White Sox fans would get super excited. But defensively, he reminds me of Corey Seager. And Corey Seager is a 6'4 shortstop for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And there are some that look at him and say, He's too big for the shortstop position. It's the same thing with Carlos Correa, that I don't know if these tall guys could stick at shortstop. Clearly, they can. And when I watch Montgomery, he's got good footwork. I like his body control. He He's not out of rhythm. Uh, he stays composed when he's charging in on a slow roller. And he's got a strong arm. It was clear, even with the pitchers that were in that state final game, that Colson Montgomery had the strongest arm on the field. Uh, and he was able to, in, in a tight space, uh, turn a double play and get the throw in time. And he had one bad throw. He had one bad throwing error. It was to his right. And instead of backhanding it, uh, he got he got in position, you know, as far as his footwork was in, in the right spot. But as soon as he came up to make the throw, you just see that the ball was going to be slipping out of his hand. And it just sailed on him. The first baseman had to make a jumping catch. And obviously that pulled him, pulled him off the bag. And Montgomery was charged with an error. But from what I've seen in that game and what I've seen from other film from Colson Montgomery, there's so many that think that Montgomery has to move over to third base. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think he's got a chance to stick at shortstop. And obviously that just increases his value. And what I was told during the Indiana postseason run for Southridge High School is that teams were not really pitching to Montgomery. He just had the one home run during the postseason. So there is some mystery regarding Colson Montgomery on the bat. And because of that mystery, I think it's the reason why Montgomery's not going to the top 15. There are some whispers that the New York Mets may want to cut a deal with Montgomery at pick number 10. And if they do that, uh, it gives them enough cash to maybe get another first round prep talent in the second round. I don't know if that will actually come to fruition. I think that's a pretty risky move for the Mets, especially what kind of talent could be on hand for them at pick number 10. But for the White Sox at pick 22, yeah, I would put Coulson Montgomery towards the top of my draft board on guys that I think would be available to them uh, because they need more infield depth. Uh, and they just need more, they just need more dynamic position players, especially if you're going to start playing guys out of position. And I, I think Montgomery has the athleticism, uh, to stick at shortstop. And I think that'd be a big benefit to the White Sox. It's just that the unknown is how good is he offensively? And I don't think we're going to fully know until he joins an organization and we see him play more minor league games.
So there's, you know, there's one other perceived negative with him too, which is age. I just wanted your take on it. I mean, he is 19, so he's older. There's a lot of teams that wouldn't even consider him because of it. And look, I find it a little bit funny, right? Because if Colson Montgomery went to Indiana, he would be eligible in two years and he would go, he would go in the top 20 as a 21 year old sophomore and nobody would care. Then he'd be young. He's old now, but two years from now he'd be young. So Yep. You know, it, it doesn't really bother me that much, but that is one of the things, you know, he's he's going to be out for a lot of teams, like just because of that reason. And I, I'm with you, James. I, I I do feel like it's 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 a bit nonsense. Now, if we're talking about signing players in the international signing period and you got one kid that's 16 and the other is 19. OK, yeah, I could understand that argument, especially if you have three million dollars to spend you're probably going to spend it on the 16 year old because you'll you're hoping that with, under your farm system and under your development programs, that 16 year old is going to be better than the 19 year old is today. Like that's, that's the hope, right? I, I, I don't really read too much into as far as the age when it comes to the prep players. I, I understand some teams covered 17 year olds more than 18 year olds, I think that there's a maturity aspect that you also have to consider. Is a 17-year-old really ready to get away from home and travel on bus and be expected to live with four other guys in a one-bedroom apartment sleeping on an air mattress? Uh, I, I'm not particularly sure. I'm not even sure if 18-year-olds can do that, if they are prepared for that. Uh, so I guess I, I'm I, I mean. I'm with you, James. I'm not reading too much as far as into the age. If other teams view that as a negative, well, I think that helps the White Sox even more at pick 22. Yeah. And you, you know, you talked about them using a similar strategy. I'm with you. Obviously we don't know like what the picks are going to be, but they've, you know, look, they've skewed more prep lately. They haven't done it in the first round since Courtney Hawkins. If they do it, you know, some of the other names that have been talked about, Max Muncie, there's Peyton Stovall, you know, Joe Mack, I don't think is an option in this spot. But I mean, Keith Law mentioned Isaac Pacheco today. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a couple, there's a West Calf out of Arizona. Any of those, do you think they can get any of those guys to like 57 with $2 million, maybe something, you know, could, could that be part of the plan here? Maybe Pacheco. I am on the Isaac Pacheco bandwagon. He is not a shortstop. That I can tell you. He plays shortstop for his high school team. He is not a shortstop. He, it's just not natural watching him try to play the shortstop position. I think if he st- if he sticks in the infield, it's going to be at third base. He's got a big arm. Uh, he might be someone that you want to try in the outfield, in either left field or right field as well. But you would not be drafting Pacheco for his defensive ability. You are drafting for his power. James, I have a comp on him. He's He reminds me of Nolan Gorman. And Nolan Gorman has incredible power. And I think Pacheco is someone that has a future power rating of like 60 to 70. Like if he does reach his ceiling uh, as a prospect and as a player professionally, he could be someone that you dream on hits 25 to 30 home runs a year and maybe even has the ability to hit for more power. And for this White Sox farm system, I mean, yeah, there's Mike Adolfo, and then there are the results with the super bouncy ball in Charlotte, but there's really not that much more power in their farm system that they're currently developing. So if you add someone like Pacheco, he may be the the power prospect that you're watching and, and dreaming on that he could be the next prolific home run hitter 
for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, the other guy you mentioned, Chase Stovall. All right. Barrel speed. The data coming out of his showcases and out of his games, and when I'm speaking to everyone, is how impressive that he puts the barrel on the ball. This is a gap-to-gap type of prospect. Future power home run ranking uh, ratings, I should say. Looking at someone that can maybe hit 15 to 20 home runs a year, uh, but this guy just has incredible bat speed. Velocity has no problem at all for him. Uh, and, and again, you know, scouts are looking at how well do you fare as far as your whiff rate on fastball velocity greater than 95 miles per hour. And uh, Peyton Stovall does not have that problem uh, based on the showcases and how well he performed down in Louisiana. And I, I think he might be someone worth trying, James, to get him at pick 57 for 2 million because it's, I I feel like his ceiling is the white Sox at pick 22. And if he doesn't go to the white Sox, I'm not hearing a lot of buzz for him for the rest of the first round until you get to the comp rounds. And that's in the comp rounds, the bonuses start to get below 2 million. So the white Sox could strike a deal. Let's say hypothetically, they could strike a deal with Stovall and convince Stovall to wait out until pick 57. We'll give you $2 million to sign with us. If they were to do a Colson Montgomery and Payne Stovall first two rounds of this upcoming draft, I think that is more of a slam dunk than getting Jared Kelly last year in the second round. Yeah. Because no, I, now yeah, you got a, sure. you got, you got a middle infield pairing that you can dream on and they can develop together. Yeah. And I, you know, I haven't seen Stovall a ton and, I think the knock is like nobody has any idea where he's going to play defensively, but yeah, that bat at 57 um, would, would be a steal. I, I, I think he sticks at second base. I, yeah. I do. I, I know there's some that think that maybe you want to put him in left field. And I don't think there's anything wrong taking a player like Stovall and be like, well, you're playing both. You're going to play some second base and you're going to play in left field. And right now White Sox fans are all crazy about Adam Frazier for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Peyton Stovall could possibly be an Adam Frazier type, which, you know, tremendous far bat control and has no problem with handling velocity and does a great job of getting the barrel through the zone and barreling up as far as pitches that he, that he sees. I, I think that would be the dream scenario for the White Sox, especially if they want to go prep heavy is if you can get someone like Colson Montgomery at 22 and then go over slot at 57 for Peyton Stovall, then you got this middle infield pairing that they could develop together along with the White Sox young pitchers and whomever they decide to keep during this trade period. This is that wave that Rick Hahn has been talking about that they want to build and start looking to the future post-2024. That's really good stuff, Josh. And uh, that takes me to my next question. And, and thinking about the draft strategy past the first round, and I guess it does it goes back to how the White Sox want to play it, but in your opinion, how would you prefer the White Sox go about maybe the the front end of this draft? Do you want them to maybe spend overslot in, in the first 10 rounds? What are the types of athletes that you're looking for past the first round that you're hoping the White Sox attack? Is it prep arms or is it just the, the pure athlete, infielders? What is it that you're looking for in the White Sox draft strategy this year? So when I compile the 2021 Major League Baseball draft uh, average rankings database, which I'm pulling everyone's top lists 
uh, ESPN, MLB Pipeline, Baseball America, Keith Law at The Athletic, Prep Baseball Report, Fan Graphs. I, I'm pulling their top list and I average out the rankings because some guys are really high on some prospects and they're really low on another list. And that same list could be really high on someone. And that same prospect list is completely 180 as far as difference of opinion. And when I'm looking at, like, for example, pick 57 for the White Sox and the players that are in that 50 to 60 range right now in this list, it's underachieving college bats and prep pitchers. And then your Max Muncie that's been rumored to the White Sox uh, is number 59 on the list. Wes Kath, James just mentioned him. He's number 55 on the list. So I think for the White Sox in your first two rounds, I say go prep and I say go overslot. Try to get the best prep talent possible because when you get to, I think the third round is what, like pick 91, uh, you start getting some uh, interesting names, uh, guys that have performed well on the college level. So if you needed to save money, like someone like Justice Thompson, an outfielder from North Carolina, big swing and miss in his game, but he's got the athleticism to stay stick in center field and he... He's got the flair of the dramatic, that's for sure, for the Tar Heels this season. He's got some pop in his bat. Um, you see, you got Zach uh, Geloff from Virginia, uh, who's been performing well for the Cavaliers during their postseason run. Nathan Hickey has had some big moments for Florida. Uh, he's a draft-eligible catcher for, from the Gators. Uh, even someone like Aaron Zavala, an outfielder from Oregon. You, you get more interesting college position players available to you in the third round that if you really wanted to save money, you could. Uh, but yeah, right now, if I'm, if I'm in Rick Hans ear, I think the strategy has to be preparing to go over slot in the first and second round. I don't necessarily think they have to go over slot for Colson Montgomery. Uh, I think they could get him for $3 million and that's going to be right where the white Sox bonus slot is. Cause it's like something like $3,017,000. It's a weird amount for the White Sox at pick number 22. Um, but for that second round pick, they're going to have to go over slot. So borrowing from rounds four through 10 to go over slot and get another top 50 caliber player at pick 57, I think that's the way to go. If you can make trades, Mike, in the Major League Baseball draft, I would I would advise the White Sox to trade down to like pick 28 through 30. I still think you can get Montgomery there. And then you can maybe pick up another draft pick, uh, but you can't do that obviously with the way that the CBA is. Hopefully that changes in the future, but it's a, I'm rambling here, but yeah, I think the more I look at the database and the players available and how guys are ranked right now, even on my personal draft board, I would say the white Sox should go prep and they should be prepared to go over slide in the first two rounds. So, you know, one other thing about that, like, you know, you can go into a draft like this with a plan. And I think last year, you know, they kind of did that. I don't think we knew that it was going to be Garrett Crochet, but there was a lot of rumblings that it was Garrett Crochet. And then there were some yeah. rumblings after that, that, hey, they might have had a deal with Jared Kelly, too, the whole time. Right. So you kind of go into a draft knowing who you're going to get at 11. But at 22, like somebody falls down the board that you can't pass on. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how you go into a draft, like with a deal when you pick 22, but they might. And one guy that I'm curious about that I know that you've seen, I've heard the, the prep rumblings too, just like everybody else have, but I've also, you know, 
it's the White Sox. And they haven't taken a prep hitter or a prep player in general in the first round since, what, Courtney Hawkins in 2012. And if they go yep. back to the old reliable and they take a college pitcher in the first round, I've heard a lot about Gavin Williams of ECU. I hadn't seen him much, but I saw that it's like 130 strikeouts in 80-some innings. There was reliever risk coming into the year, and he's a big, huge guy. How similar is it to to Garrett Crochet, and what did you think like when you saw him this year the few times that you did? The comp that I have for Gavin Williams, and this is going to drive White Sox fans crazy, and they're going to be conflicted. He reminds me of Michael Kopech. The dude throws 97 and 99 going into the sixth inning against Vanderbilt in the Super Regionals. And he's got this sharp slider and he doesn't throw it much, but he's got this changeup that's going to be one of these high velocity changeups that just tails away against lefties. And it's just another offering that he has to get left handers out. I like Gavin Williams. And if the White Sox went in that direction, I would understand why they went in that direction because I think that Gavin Williams, if you draft him, he's a good insurance policy. If you cannot get Lucas Giolito into a long-term contract after arbitration. And I think Williams is someone that can rise quickly through a farm system. I don't think it would be wise to draft someone like Williams and throw him into the bullpen in September and be like, Hey, you're going to help us on our postseason run. He's got that type of stuff, but <sighs> I hope the White Sox don't go that route. They obviously, they, they could again with Williams again, it's 97 and 99 with a fastball velocity. And I think it's at least a 50 grade slider. Some have a 60 grade slider, but I would, if they do decide to go that route, James, I would almost like to see Williams maybe make two, three starts in the minors. He's had already a pretty lengthy season. This is someone that had uh, injury riddled seasons in his first three years at East Carolina. And he mostly pitched out of the bullpen for the pirates. But in 2022, I would like him to stay in the minor leagues and continue to develop as a starter. Just the same benefit that Michael Kopech had because everybody remembers on how well Kopech threw in Birmingham. And I think that gave a lot of confidence to Michael Kopech that yes, he can be a major league starter with how well he performed in double a. And if the white Sox do go in the direction of drafting Gavin Williams, that's fine. I think he's got great talent, but I caution to be patient with him. I would not throw him in the major league bullpen right away. Like they did with Garrett crochet after some weeks in Schaumburg. And I would like to see him fully develop as a starter in 2022, because I do think he's got the same type of arsenal that Michael Kopech has. And while we watched Michael Kopech before he got hurt with his hamstring injury, I know how well the White Sox starters have been throwing. I think Kopech's got the best overall stuff out of all the, the White Sox starting pitchers that they have. I think Kopech's got better stuff than Lucas Giolito. And I think Kopech's the one that's going to be the future ace of this White Sox rotation. And I think Williams has got that same type of potential. It's just that teams have to be patient with him and they always have to keep an eye on his injury uh, as far as his health and making sure that things don't blow up on him. And then he's going to have to miss a season because of Tommy John. So if they go that route, James, I'm, again, I'm fine with it, but I caution 
for the White Sox to be more patient and actually develop Williams as a starting pitcher and not go down the Garrett Crochet route. So, you know, the last draft thing for me, and then we'll get into some other stuff. I, You know, I think the casual fans are going to be a little bit surprised with this draft. I don't want to see if you agree. I mean, a lot of times there's a lot of college hitters and they rise to the top because they're safe and it's just what happens. This year, there's there's not really that. Like, I think Henry Davis of Louisville is going to go fairly high. He could go one, um, but he's really the only one. And then there's a ton of high school shortstops. And then there's the two Vanderbilt pitchers. and you know, I think the general public would just assume like, oh yeah, it's lighter and it's, and it's rocker one, two. And it just seems like it's not going to be because more than ever money matters in the draft. And if you're a team like Pittsburgh or a team with extra picks, you know, the whole point of the draft is to get as much talent as possible. And if you take Jack lighter or Kumar Rocker up there, like they're going to want the full seven, the full 8 million, whatever it's going to be. And it, I think it's just going to deter some teams. And also like teams just take position players because pitchers break and they're afraid of them. So, you know, it seems like lighter is going to try to force his way to Boston. And I wouldn't be surprised if rocker goes in that seven, eight, nine range. What are your thoughts on just like those guys falling? And then like the reaction to like, once that happens, if it does. I agree with you, James. And the Golden Spikes finalists were announced, and Lighter and Rocker are two of the three finalists to win the Golden Spikes Award, which is the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy for for college baseball. And I agree with you. Lighter is going to Boston at number four. Lighter may not be the first pitcher taken in this draft. It might be Jackson Job, the right-hander out of Oklahoma, that goes number three to Detroit. Why? I don't know what Detroit's thinking. Does anyone know what Detroit is thinking? That's not the direction I would go if I were the Tigers. But there's a lot of rumors that Detroit is down to two players on their draft board. Marcelo Mayer, who who I think is going to go number one overall to Pittsburgh, and Jackson Job. So you could have the possibility that Jackson Job goes number three, and then Jack Leiter goes number four. And then the casual baseball fan, as you mentioned, is going to throw their hands up in the air and say, that doesn't make any sense, Detroit. I, I see the videos from the Pitching Ninja on Twitter, uh, and I saw the College World Series. Why are you taking this high schooler over Jack Leiter? And uh, yeah, this draft is going to be weird. And, and the weirdness may start at number five with Baltimore. Keith Law wrote about it. I heard about it today. Uh, Logan Hagen is really high. On this prospect, Colton Kowser out of Sam Houston State. It's hard to get film on Sam Houston State. Uh, He may go in the top five. Uh, He is a college outfielder. And the reason why he may go in the top five, he has an incredibly low whiff rate on fastball velocity greater than 97 miles per hour. And he may be willing to cut a deal to go at number five to Baltimore Uh, just like uh, they did last year, the Orioles with the Arkansas outfielder. And I'm stalling. Yeah. Heston Heston Kirstad. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Heston Kirstad. Yeah. yeah, The Baltimore may go in that direction again. So that early in the second round, they could try to get another first round talent in the second round slot. That's why it's so major league baseball draft is so weird when you compare it to other drafts that fans are really into like the NFL or the NBA. Everyone says you take the best player available. That's not true. Teams take the best player available. They can sign 
at the amount that they want to sign for. <laughs> and, and you're 100% right, James. Like, especially the first 10 picks, it's all going to be about money because Baltimore's got a strategy. Uh, I'm sure Pittsburgh has a strategy on trying to get a couple of first round talent uh, players and, and, you know, their first two picks that that's what all teams are trying to do. So even though you're going to be looking at these draft rankings and ask, well, why did you take the guy that was ranked 12th overall third overall? That doesn't make sense. You guys are reaching, Well, we won't know until what the bonus amount is that they signed for and how their second, third, fourth, and fifth round picks go in the next couple of days. That that's, it's what makes the draft fun for baseball, but it is what makes the draft really frustrating to cover for Major League Baseball. Uh, and especially this year, it's going to be chaotic. Yeah, and it, you know, it's why you can't always just like look at rankings and be like, oh, this guy's going to go next because you just don't know. And like for those unaware, like, me, you know, me and Mike talked on the podcast a lot about what the White Sox did with Jared Kelly last year. Like, look, like anybody could have taken Jared Kelly like in front of them, right? But it's very evident that the number was $3 million. The White Sox met it. And whether or not they they shut it down with other teams, I don't think we'll ever know. But that's how this stuff happens. When Jack Leiter was coming out as a high schooler, he basically said like he would go pro if, if he could go to the Mets or the Yankees. That didn't happen. He went to Vanderbilt. There's, I am not shocked at all that he wants to end up in Boston. And he does that by essentially telling the top three teams, like, I want $10 million or I'm not signing. And then Boston takes him and he signs for seven or whatever their deal is. But that's like, you know, in theory, that's that's how these things work. And what complicates matters more, you have two guys, two first round talents, Bubba Chandler and Will Taylor. Both of these guys also have Clemson football scholarships. So both of them are easily top top 20 talents there. I have not even wrote about profiles for either of them, because I don't think they're going to be on the board for the White Sox at pick 22. If they are available, they're not going to sign. They are going to Clemson to play football, and then they'll go play baseball in the spring. But that they're a signing risk right now. And with my average rankings uh, database, Bubba Chandler is ranked 19, and he is a quarterback signee for Clemson. And Will Taylor's number 20. And we just don't know about the signability and which team wants to get burned because the Oakland A's went through this with Kylie Kyler Murray and they lost their number nine overall pick taking him thinking that they were clever getting this underslack guy. And then Murray decides, now nah, I'm going to go be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. And now he's with the Arizona Cardinals and Oakland's looking around and be like, well, we just lost a first round pick. Uh, so yeah, this draft is going to be wild. It, the money is a huge influence. Uh, football scholarships are going to be a huge influence and just the lacking of college hitters in this first round is really going to make teams scramble and trying to find the best talent that they can sign for at the amount that they want to sign for in the first round. I expect the first round to be a wild ride. Man, that's uh, that's some really good stuff. I just sat back. I was just sitting there listening. I was enjoying the show because I, I learned a lot there. So really good stuff, Josh and, and James as well. Really excited to revisit a lot of the information that you provided for us as the MLB Amateur Draft in 2021 starts on July 11th. 
So hopefully you're tuned into that and we'll see what the White Sox decide to do. I want to ask you a few things since we have you here, Josh, about where the White Sox stand in the farm system, as well as some of the major league concerns at this point of the season. There is one thing that I'd like to throw your way, and I, I need to hear your opinion on this. And I'm sure you talked enough about it on the Sox Machine podcast as well. Go to SoxMachine.com to find all the information. Garrett Crochet's future. James and I go back and forth about this a lot. How do you feel the White Sox are using him and developing him in his career? And do you think he could become a future starter at some point? James and I have been arguing about this for a calendar year. Uh, <laughs> ever since Crochet was drafted. Uh, Crochet is not a starter. I firmly believe that leading up to the draft day, watching him against his only appearance against Wright State, watching film in 2019, uh, during Tennessee's postseason run and how Tennessee was using Crochet. I've always felt that Crochet could be the next Josh Hader, Andrew Miller type. I don't think he's got the endurance and the consistency to last five plus innings that you would like to see in a starting pitcher. Could it be developed? Sure, it, it could be. But when they drafted Crochet, I had an inkling that they were going to try to throw him into the White Sox bullpen. Uh, to help out and see what he could do as far as in the postseason. And we all know what happened in Oakland, uh, even though Crochet had a terrific start. I, I just feel like this is his role. He is going to be that lefty bullpen weapon that the White Sox want for the upcoming years and hoping that he develops into a Josh Hader type. I continue to laugh whenever Chris gets suggests that, well, yeah, this is the 2021 plan, but Next year, we're going to see if he can stretch out to a starter when clearly you're making no progress into that realm. So I, it's very hard for me to believe the White Sox that they want Garrett Crochet to be a starter. Crochet may want that, but they just may be publicly saying that uh, as dangling a carrot out for Garrett Crochet. And, you know, maybe the dream is that, hey, he can handle two innings. Can he handle three? And then he can handle three. And then he's having the same type of success Michael Kopech is in spot starts, but we're not getting that in 2021. And I'm just having a tough time believing we're ever going to get that. And uh, I do give James credit because it does raise the question, then why did you take him 11th overall? And that is a great question that I cannot answer at this moment. Yeah. I mean, we've all been talking about this. I feel, and I think my biggest issue is just like the, the communication about the whole thing, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And look, they're they're rarely on the same page there. Like, we know that. But right away, it's the scouting director saying, you know, oh, mid-rotation starter. Like, you know, we think he can start, blah, blah, blah. And then he's in the bullpen. And now it's my biggest issue is the usage, right? Like, he's never starting. Like, me and Mike have gone back and forth with the, you know, about this. Like, he doesn't have enough innings to start. And I know my mentions mm -hmm. fill up with Chris Sale. Chris, like Chris Sale had a full workload at Florida Gulf Coast. Like, Yes, he did. Garrett Crochet has never thrown enough innings to just like magically be in the rotation in 2023. So that's the issue that I have with it is that like, you know, you've been steadfast saying that he's a reliever and like, that's fine. Um, my, my, my problem isn't that. My problem is that like, I, I'm not totally sure that they know what they're doing and that they're like on the same page with what he actually, I think they just like Mike Shirley saw the arm, fell in love with the arm. They took the guy and they're like, Oh yeah, we'll figure it out. Cause the arm's so good. And then he was better last year than they thought he was. 
didn't yep. make a trade at the deadline, brought him up. He did what he did. And then now they're in a bad spot because of it. And, and we'll see. I mean, look, if he's, if he's an eighth inning guy, that's dominant, like for a while. Yeah, that's fine. Right. That's a good outcome, but that shouldn't be your desired outcome of an 11th overall pick. And, and you know what, Josh, I totally understand. And I'm, I'm in agreement with you with coming from your perspective and, and James as well bring up the communication factor because if, if they're telling us they want crochet as a starter what's the plan for crochet to become a starter because right. we're not seeing it we're, we're seeing him in the big league bullpen consistently and it's going to take him at least a year and the point of the inexperience in college leading into the draft and then not having a junior season or hell even a full minor league season period prior to his major league debut and it's going to take more time than we think and yeah, the consistency as well. Josh, you mentioned it. Let's see the consistency in his delivery, the stuff, inning by inning, batter by batter. It's just not there yet. And I think that the main thing is the communication. It's going to take time. You need to give this guy, it's a project. You need to give him time to develop. Yeah, and go full circle back to Gavin Williams. The conversation that we're having is not a conversation that I want to have again, James and Mike, when we're talking about draft day. And if the White Sox do take Williams, do not go down the Garrett Crochet path. Just don't. Even though we'll hear it during the TV broadcast, Jim, uh, Jim Callis will say it. Jonathan Mayo may say it. The Baseball America guys may say, oh, he could follow the same path as Garrett Crochet. I would advise not to do that because Gavin Williams, in my opinion, has an opportunity to be a mid-rotation back-end starter. I think he's got a very similar arsenal to Michael Kopech. And we are hyped about Michael Kopech because in the future, we see that guy throwing six to seven innings, 30 starts at a season, and maybe being a Cy Young contender where we don't have that same vision right now for Garrett Crochet. And, and I think this is a great conversation to have on the Future Sox podcast. Yeah. I have this same concern with Andrew Vaughn. Mm -hmm. Like we went through a rebuild where they didn't rush anyone. They let all the prospects prove that they could handle a level before promoting them. And they have built this great core. Now that got the, they got this great core, and this is my question to you, Mike and James, I get the sense that they're going back to their old ways of rushing prospects when they are simply not ready for that level. And if they get you know instant success, it blinds them on the long-term development path for these players. And we may see some guys fail like we have seen in the past, like Gordon Beckham. I know that scares a lot of folks within the White Sox organization. That's my fear with Crochet and Vaughn is that yeah. you're rushing these guys too soon again and you're going back to your old habits. Yeah, I, I think that, man, the 2020 season really has a lot to do with their thought it process does. there. You know, and I think with the way they use Garrett Crochet, 100 miles an hour left-handed pen, the guy, he was competing enough at the alternate site against professional bats that they said, man, we got to use him. We're trying to win. And then with Andrew Vaughn, they were sold, I would say, last year into spring training going into 2020, saying at some point maybe we could use him. So I think they were overselling their own value, maybe in their evaluations with with Vaughn. I think they were a little ahead of the ahead of themselves with Crochet. I think the Vaughn conversation's very interesting to discuss because I think there's more there. But yeah, that is a, that's an interesting point to bring up, James. I don't know what your take is there. 
Well, I mean, I think Vaughn is like too good to like get ruined, but he's definitely like I don't think any of us thought he was going to struggle this much against righties, and you know it goes back to like what Josh said, like they they have Garrett Crochet and Andrew Vaughn developing in the big leagues because they didn't want to spend any more money, and it sucks, but it kind of is what it is. Like he he's hitting against lefties. I think he's holding his own. Like the, the OPS is like in the seven hundreds. Like I think Andrew Vaughn's a lot better than that, but yeah, they don't, but they, the, the problem is they don't necessarily have time to deal with it. Right. Like I'm mm-hmm, raging right. on Twitter. I'm, I'm raging on Twitter because Andrew Vaughn like isn't in the lineup, but like if I'm Tony and they got a righty on the mound, like you could make a damn good argument that, Jake Lamb should be playing and Andrew Vaughn shouldn't yeah. be, you know, but it, it just shouldn't be like that. It should be when the guy gets here, like they play every day and it's not like right. that because he's probably not ready to play every day. Yeah. And what prevents us having this conversation is if the white Sox in their first two picks of the draft, take high schoolers. Cause you're not calling up 18 and 19 year olds uh, to the major leagues. You're not. So if you draft high schoolers in the first two rounds, you're not calling them up and we're not having this discussion. Are they rushing these prospects too much? I mean, even like Jake Berger, I know that he's doing the best that he can in AAA. I'm still shocked that he's with Charlotte. The dude hasn't played in two years and you're going to take him from high A to AAA and not have him go to Birmingham. I, I thought that was curious uh, as far as their, their aggressiveness with Jake Berger. And so we'll see, maybe they're going to be more aggressive with college players because they've had that experience, especially if you're taking college players from premium conferences or they have faced premium competition, that a ball is just wasting their time and they need a challenge right away. So you want to start them at double A uh, instead of in Kannapolis or Winston-Salem. And maybe that is the future for all organizations since you don't have, you know, the Montana league or you don't, the White Sox don't have great falls anymore. Uh but to avoid this conversation and come full circle, yeah. If the White Sox take high schoolers in the first two rounds, then we're not talking about the possibilities of those players joining the big league club in some type of postseason run. Yeah, I, James, you brought up just the financial aspect of not adding and using Vaughn, obviously, in a position that he hasn't played before. I think it, it was a result of a lot of the circumstances. It, it was a matter of circumstances, is what I'm trying to say, is going into this year, with the injuries, it's like, hey, man, this is what we have. Not accounting for those injuries because they're not investing in free agency forced their hand to play Vaughn. Maybe he was going to start at Charlotte at the start of the year if everybody was healthy. Maybe Yerman's still down if everybody was healthy. And then say, wow, like as a result, now we got to develop this guy who is very raw and who has never played above high A you know, after 2019, and now he's developing the big league. And like you said, it's – it's a difficult conundrum for Larusa. I mean, you got to give the guy a little slack. Like you said, if he's not producing, even though the organization wants him to play every day, you're you're in a tough spot. Uh, that's that's a really really good topic that has multiple layers to it. And I want to circle back to Josh about the pitching staff because you mentioned Michael Kopech. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Michael Kopech, I believe, is is going to be the ace of the staff once he's consistently on the mound as a starter, and he's. He's awesome. He's electric. He's got consistency in his delivery and his mechanics. I love his stuff. He and he's athletic. So I, I think that is the future for the White Sox, the future age of the White Sox as well. But when it comes to the depth of the pitching staff across the farm system, and I think this has a lot to do with where the White Sox stand right now. Don't want to look too far into the future, 
but you're losing Lance Lynn and Carlos Rodon to free agency possibly. So if you want to bring back one or maybe two of them, you know, it's going to cost you a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. What is it about this trade deadline? Obviously they got to fill needs now, but that you're saying to yourself, okay, who is untouchable? How do we plan for a world series now? Obviously that's what Rickon said at the beginning of the season, the goal is a world series, as well as trying to anticipate for future seasons, not trying to give up too much to, uh, to kind of cut the farm, so to speak. Yeah, Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet are untouchable, period, because the White Sox in 2021 need Michael Kopech and Garrett Crochet to get through this season to win the American League Central and give them a chance to win the American League pennant. They're untouchable. So I understand if a team calls the White or the White Sox call them and then teams like, well, we want Michael Kopech for player X. That's not happening. And the White Sox are not going to entertain that. As far as the guys that are in the minor leagues, I don't think anyone is untouchable. Uh, one prospect that I'm sure will garner a lot of interest is the Canapolis shortstop, Jose Rodriguez, uh, for how well Rodriguez has been playing. And I think you're going to have a lot of eyes on Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist and Jared Kelly. I don't think any of those guys are untouchable. I think they can be moved in the right type of deal. Uh, if you're going to get an impact player that helps you not only this season, but if you can get a player that also helps you next season, that's where I would leverage those types of prospects. Because when the, when the, when the prospect lists update soon, we're almost to the future games. It'll be a future game during the all-star break in a couple of weeks. So I think at the end of July, we're supposed to be getting updated top 100 lists from everybody. Uh, and as far as top organization lists, I know where to find the White Sox. It's going to be in the bottom five. And there's not a lot of people that are very high on this farm system after the graduations the White Sox have had. And I'm going to get James really upset here. I think it's because of the White Sox direction and how they're handling the international market when they're trading away money so they could avoid buyouts on players, which is the dumbest thing in the world. Uh, and I think it's biting the White Sox in the backside <laughs> big time when they're not spending their full market value or they're spending millions of dollars on 23-year-old Cubans when nobody else is doing that. And I think the White Sox not feeding the, the major leagues with, with you know, more prep players. And we've seen them do it the last couple of years, but they weren't necessarily doing that from like 2015 to 2019. They were trying to take the best college player available. And uh, yeah, their farm system is just not that impressive. And if they get into a bidding war, let's say like Adam Frazier, right? I like Adam Frazier too, White Sox fans. But if Pittsburgh's going to wait until the final week to get serious about making a deal for Adam Frazier, the Yankees are going to call about Adam Frazier. It sounds like the Houston Astros want another left-handed bat. They're going to call Pittsburgh uh, for Adam Frazier. And you look at the Yankees and Astros farm systems, they've got more interesting prospects than the White Sox do. So if you're wanting to advise Rick Hahn on what to do, do you want the White Sox who I'm looking at MLB pipelines top, you know, 10 list because that's where white Sox fans usually go. Do you want them to trade their number one prospect, their number three prospect, the number five prospect for Adam Frazier? Like, and people will say, well, the Yankees are not giving up their number one prospect. 
Well, because the White Sox number one prospect might be lucky to be in the Yankees top 10 prospects. That's where the White Sox farm system is right now. And while they have focused so much energy on building this championship core, and they should be applauded for that. There's also the quote that Rick Hahn said that the goal was to develop and have wave after wave of talent. Well, they've had a tsunami of talent come to Chicago and now they've got a pond that's very still behind them and they could use this year's draft class and this, this upcoming international market to jumpstart their farm system, to develop that next wave of talent, but it's not there right now. And I wonder if that's going to impact on the type of players, the white Sox can actually trade for and make deals before July 31st. Yeah. So, I mean, I completely agree with you. I, uh, yeah, it's rough. I mean, because even like I think we're both fans of Jared Kelly. I think we both kind of yes. like Matthew Thompson. But I mean, even if you're Pittsburgh right now, and look, we've gone back and forth with this and DMs and text messages and whatever. But like, I mean, James Fegan of the Athletic proposed Jared Kelly and whoever else, like for Adam Frazier, right? And it would sting a little bit only because, like, you know, you would like for Jared Kelly to pitch well and then be sold off for something even better, I think. But I don't know why Ben Charrington would take Jared Kelly as a headliner right now. I just like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I think the Sox are just like in a, in a tough spot. And that's not to say that like six months from now, like some of these young guys really take off and we think their farm system looks better and they have guys to trade. But right now it's just like with no season last year, I just, I, I don't know. I think they're in, they're in a pretty tough spot to the point where, you know, you're trading the Andrew Dahlquist of the world for rentals and you don't really want to do that, but you might have to. So I'm with you. The last thing that I have, and then we'll let you go just, you know, I wanted you to touch on, and I'm sure Jim will talk about it on your podcast, but Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets are both in Charlotte. Um, they're seemingly going to be big leaguers. I don't know that they're going to be impact big leaguers. They might both be platoon guys. What do you think? the best course of action is for those guys right now. If you're the White Sox and you can't make a deal, do you let them come up and platoon and see what they have? Or do you try to keep them in Charlotte um, with favorable matchups and use them as trades, even if it's for, you know, some eighth inning guy at the deadline? And that's a good question. I think for Gavin Sheets, it could be worthwhile to call him up because your Mercedes has decided to stop hitting and having Sheets get some at bats at DH. I I don't think Yuma Mercedes deserves to be in the lineup every single day. I, I don't. And he doesn't play a position. So I'm not exactly sure why, if he's not hitting, why he's still in the 26-man roster. You want some position flexibility, at least, on, on the team. And I think Gavin Sheets would provide more than Yuma Mercedes because Sheets could play first base and he could fake it in left field and right field because that's where he's been playing mostly in Charlotte to develop those outfielder skills. And if you want him to have some DH at-bats, he, he can do that. Uh, so I think Gavin Sheets may might want to be in Chicago or should be in Chicago right now instead of Yuma Mercedes. That's just how I feel because I think Sheets can give Tony Larusa a little bit more flexibility in lineup creation every day. Jake Berger, fantastic story. I like I like to see him survive 2021 in AAA and see where he's at. I'm not a buyer in Jake Berger being a second baseman, and the early reports are a bit shaky. He's, he's obviously new to the position and he's learning this position now in triple a. So I would, I would like to see Jake Berger just stick in Charlotte for the entire season. 
However, the future for both of these players, they're blocked. Okay. Like there's Andrew Vaughn and I like Andrew Vaughn more than Gavin Sheets. There's Yoan Makata. Jake Berger is not going to be the White Sox third baseman. And when Nick Madrigal comes back, he's not going to be the second baseman. And I don't think there's enough at bats at DH for either of them. We have talked about possible trades with Arizona. And I think you can leverage someone like Gavin Sheets in a deal to bring in someone like Eduardo Escobar and maybe even throw in Joaquin Soria to help in the bullpen. And Gavin Sheets is part of that deal. He's not the, he may be the headliner. Um, there may, there, I got to assume other players would be available, but that's how you can leverage someone like Gavin Sheets because Gavin Sheets will get playing time because Arizona's kind of in this weird position right now where they're going to have the number one pick in next year's draft, but they're not totally sold that they have to rebuild. They, they want to do more of a reload. And they may want guys that are going to be closer to major league ready than Pittsburgh, which Pittsburgh is going to have a full rebuild and they want teenagers. Uh, so that's kind of how I see Gavin sheets and even Jake Berger. If a team said, Hey, we're interested in Jake Berger would like him in a, in a trade package. If I'm Rick Hahn, I would flip Jake Berger. It's uh, I know there's a lot of white Sox fans that would like to see Jake Berger make it. And especially with everything that he's gone through with the, the injuries and play in a white Sox uniform. But if Arizona saying, yeah, you can have Eduardo Escobar, but we want Jake Berger or Gavin sheets plus, uh, you know, another prospect. Uh, you got, I think you got to make that deal, right? It's the result of where the white Sox stand at this point, you know, and the Sox spent a lot of resources in getting Jake Berger back the whole story about getting him mentally right again and allowing him to rehab in a familiar territory and allowing him to play in the collegiate league during the um, 2020 season to get live at bats. I mean, there was a lot of time invested in this player, but again, like you've been saying, I, I agree with you. I would love to see Jake Berger stick in AAA. There's no reason to rush this guy unless you're in desperate need of a bat and the White Sox are, are looking elsewhere for that. And with Gavin Sheets, it's been the unfortunate reality of his entire tenure, really, as his power has developed over the last two seasons. Still, like you said, he's blocked, and it's unfortunate because he's really progressed in his game. But it could net the White Sox a positive. So, Josh, uh, really, really great stuff as always. Enjoyed the conversation. Before we let you go, anything that you'd like to plug? I know you mentioned the Milwaukee tailgate that's coming up at Sox Machine. Uh, the draft is coming up July 11th. What are some of the content that our listeners can look forward to on SoxMachine.com? Well, you guys can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. I'm going to be dragging James Moore into the Twitter spaces that we're hosting. He doesn't know this yet. I'm breaking the news to him on your guys' podcast, but I think we're going to have our MLB draft show on Twitter spaces because with pick 22 this season, it's just too hard to produce and plan on when the White Sox are going to actually make their pick. And if I got to talk about the Major League Baseball draft as it's happening for two, three hours because MLB Network needs to make an event out of it, uh, I'd rather do it very casually. Uh, so Twitter space may be the way to go and we'll bring in other prospect writers and other White Sox writers and bloggers and such to join in the Twitter space because the White Sox also play that day in Baltimore at 12 o'clock in the afternoon and the draft is at Sunday night. Uh, so that's something that uh, I am thinking about. That's how we're going to do our draft show and then we can do a draft recap podcast between Sox Machine and Future Sox. 
after the first round and taking a look at the upcoming rounds because I know everybody enjoys when we collaborate and we have these conversations and ponder what's going to be next for the White Sox. So that's going to be something to, again, if you're not following Mike, James, and I on Twitter, highly recommended because I think that's where our live draft day conversation is going to be had is going to be on Twitter spaces this year because uh, James, don't hate me. I just don't want to put in that much effort in producing a draft show that could be four hours long. <laughs> no, I get it. And I was, I was like kind of thinking about that. I was like, what are we going to do? Cause like, we're literally going to know who the white Sox picked 25 minutes before they announce it on TV. So <laughs> exactly. like, exactly. it's, it's going to be brutal. We're going to have to stay off Twitter if we want to be surprised, which I don't want to be. So again, just follow me on Twitter at socks machine underscore Josh. And we'll update you guys as we get closer to the draft. We will have something as far as our live reactions on who the White Sox pick and how the first round is unfolding right now. I think it's going to be on Twitter spaces. All right, James, you're in. You, you heard I'm it in. from Josh. You're in Sunday All night, right. baby. I'm in. Sounds good. Josh, thanks so much again for jumping on. This is a really fun conversation. James, I'll probably talk to you in a couple hours. Uh, this has been another episode of the Future Sox podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Future Sox and check us out on anchor.fm forward slash Future Sox for our entire library. For Josh Nelson of Sox Machine and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much again for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.